So there's one of these things about winemaking that I always find so hilarious is there is very much this romanticized image of it that it's, you know, you're walking through the vineyard and you're plucking these beautiful grapes and they just magically, you know, somehow are crushed and immediately go into a bottle. When in fact, it is sticky and disgusting and fruit fly filled. 80% of my job is cleaning, 5% of it is organizing, and 15% of it is science. All of the rest of it is just, and I'm sorry if I'm breaking anyone's ideals about winemaking, is it is not romantic, it is physical and hard. It's great when you're done with everything, but when you're actually in the, the midst of it, it is not pleasant. Because there are bees, you have to go inside tanks, so if you're claustrophobic, you know, you're just inside this huge metal tube with maybe a one and a half foot door to get out of. And alongside with this, just people's notion of where all these tastes come from and this and that, a lot of it is just bullshit. They hire groups of trained tasters and they'll compare wines of different price points, wines of different regions, wines of the same region with different style dirt. And a lot of the times, you know, if you take that region with different dirt, then it's the same grape. Most of the time, no one can taste the difference. The dirt that something is planted in, the flavors of the dirt do not go back up through the roots and into the grapes. That's just not how plant physiology works at all. What the dirt can impact is how water drains, that kind of thing. So how healthy roots get established. So that can affect the way a grape tastes, but it's not because it's planted on slate. The grapes aren't going to taste slatier. Don't get the wool pulled over your eyes just because something is, you know, $20 more does not mean that it's a better wine at all. So I was a bartender in New York for probably 15 years, maybe 17. And about 10, 11, 12 years into it, I started realizing A, that my liver wouldn't keep up with it, nor would my joints, you know, just aging. It's just a physically brutal job. So I started thinking about what would be a good thing for me to go into. And I had this really crazy, like three months where I would go to a party and someone would severely injure themselves in front of me where like I frequently came home with blood all over me from like bandaging people's faces up. And I was just like, well, maybe this is the powers telling me that I should go into a medical career. So I got back in school. I did a full pre-med course, which I really enjoyed I did some cancer volunteer work, and then I started working at an HIV and AIDS clinic. Uh, I did a lot of documentation of PrEP. I helped New York State develop PrEP protocols. It was really, really satisfying, and I loved it. But every doctor or healthcare person I met were seriously like, you are one of the nicest and kindest people we know do not become a doctor. It will destroy your soul. So I was like, well, if I'm not supposed to be a doctor, that makes things a little messed up. So I didn't really listen to them. Uh, I applied for med school. I got in, and then it was the same time that Obamacare came into play, and I hadn't had insurance for 
a very long time. Uh, and I had severe carpal tunnel in both hands, which I was able to finally have surgery on. I had my surgery, but by doing it, I had to defer my medical school acceptances. And the next year when I tried to reapply, I literally got no response from any school that had previously accepted me or other ones that waitlisted me. And I was like, okay, then I need to find a new path. In these same couple of years, I, in addition to working in bars, started working in restaurants and did kind of food pairing with wine. And I started really enjoying that added level of wine that was a bit more sophisticated in the pairing aspect than bartending. And I was like, maybe this would be a really interesting route to go down. So I looked around to see if there were any graduate wine programs. And I found that Cornell has a really good master's program for enology and viticulture. Enology is like the food science of winemaking. I looked into it and one of their main requirements is that you have to work a harvest before they'll even consider you for the program. So I was like, all right, I guess I'll go and do this. Uh, And I loved it. And apparently I was really great at it. Like, you know, most people that come and want to get into winemaking work and want to do this type of thing really just think it's this glamorous, you get to taste wines and you, you know, get to swirl it around the glass and they don't really realize the whole other side of it where it is still very, very physical, like bartending. So I loved it. I finished my application to Cornell. I got in and with a few hiccups of personal life, when I finally actually enrolled, uh, it went quite well. And I graduated with my master's degree and like a 4.0. It's a super intensive course, but it was really satisfying the logic of the science of winemaking and the practicality of it. It just really clicked in my head and I loved it. And I've just been very lucky to have very chance interactions that have gotten me to where I am now. I studied both enology and viticulture it became apparent to me that one is not successful without the other. Uh, viticulture is really, it's all the outdoor practices. It's establishing the vineyard, growing the vines, planting them. You need to really know the climate of where you're planting, the spacing of vine to vine. There is disease pressures that are also regionally specific. So viticulture really covers the raising of grapes. Enology, essentially, it's like the in-house and the science of fermentation versus viticulture, which is the outdoor stuff. Within the science programs of winemaking, more people are interested in enology because it is significantly easier than viticulture. The viticulture practices are really intense. The best way to make good wine is by having good viticulture practices. I worked at another winery that we did about 18,000 cases of wine a year. So that is very much year round. There's no stopping to that. The place that I'm working now is, it's a smaller scale winery. So it is very seasonal. September, October, and early November is when you harvest all the grapes. And uh, I describe it as sort of insanity. You, You are really at the whims to weather 
to the predators of the grapes. You know, if you somehow have turkeys that have figured out how to get into your vineyard and they're causing damage, the moment there starts to be damage in your fruit, then wasps and bees start coming in, which causes more damage. So in that time period, you could have an easy, you know, maybe four or five hour day, or you could also have a 16 hour day. Our place is too, is too small for it, but larger scale vineyards, you would have essentially three rotating crews that would just work around the clock. Thanksgiving is essentially the first break and the first time to really sleep after harvest. By then, almost all the fermentations should be done and each fermentation really needs to be monitored for temperature, for health, for nutrients, uh, to make sure you're not getting any funky smells. So a lot of times you have to be on site for that. If sugar levels drop below a certain point, that might happen at four in the morning and you need to be there when that happens so that you can add certain things at certain stages. In December, you will start putting red wines through an additional fermentation called malolactic fermentation. What some white wines you'll start putting through a finishing process. There's certain things you need to do to stabilize wines. So you'll do that to get ready to essentially bottle all of your, your white wines and rosés in January, February, March. It is interesting because I often think when I'm out in the vineyard and I'm there's lots of little, little tasks to do in the vineyard. Like you have to pull leaves around the clusters of grapes. You have to shape the vines in the directions you want it to go every year. And it's this very meditative work. And I found myself kind of frequently thinking while I'm doing it that this is why so many monks, and I'm sure that nuns also had plenty of wineries in the day, why this would be kind of thought of as a perfect thing for monastic life, especially, you know, having a sibling that was a a nun with a vow of silence for a long time. She has told me that part of the reason she thought that they had a vow of silence was so they wouldn't get so squawky at each other. And doing something like vineyard work, you are really, there's no purpose in having anyone next to you because you just go up and down, you know, row after row after row after row. And if someone's working in the same row with you, you just bump into each other and it doesn't make any sense. So it is It is interesting. And I find when I'm doing that work out there, it is very peaceful. I, I find myself really, really centered and calm when I'm doing it, even if, you know, it's 90 some degrees outside. It feels really nice to feel so hands-on and organic and tactile with something that I'm that I'm making. I see making wine as a bit of an artistic endeavor for myself and I feel like I've slid into it fairly effortlessly and it, maybe it's because I'm a bit anal retentive about making sure all the science stuff is proper that things just run smoothly but it just it fits really well with me. Times both doing science stuff inside and being out at the vines is, while not Catholic whatsoever, is is a bit of a religious experience. While I do love the responsibility of being head winemaker, essentially, if a wine gets messed up, it is all on my shoulders. 
the person who owns the vineyard that I'm working for is someone that I really like and, I, and really respect. So having that kind of weight of the business is a little bit taxing. For example, there's one wine this year that I did not actually ferment. I got dropped in kind of mid-harvest, and the the wine that I did not handle, it, it smells bad. It's just, it is not a wine up to the standards that I would ever want my product to be. But in the same time, we have 150 cases of it. And I just keep reminding myself that the average wine taster will not pick up on the flaws in it. But I have to try to troubleshoot and find ways to fix this there's certain aspects of wine that when the science gets locked into a certain thing, there is no undoing of it. There's no recovering certain things. I'm still hoping that this one I can, I can fix. I have like two more tricks up my sleeve, but it's also, I don't want to, it's a wine. I don't want to mess with it too much. My, My personal thoughts about wine, if the fruit is healthy, you don't really need to fuck with it a lot. If it comes in and it's healthy you don't need to add stuff. You don't need to do crazy tricks with it. It should speak for itself. The main thing that I do find very difficult and disheartening about winemaking is if you are someone like me that, you know, I don't have any money in savings, really. I am, you know, very lucky about certain aspects in my life, but I don't have money to start a business. And even if I did, I would not have enough money to ever consider starting a winery. You have to be incredibly wealthy to do a venture like this. You know, artists do stuff on commission, but it's still their piece that they made. And for me, unless I had my own winery, it it will never fully be my wine. I don't feel weird about our arrangement. I feel like it is pretty balanced in most ways. But just thinking about the future, like there is no opportunity I think I will ever have to have a place of my own unless I hit the lottery. I don't have a lot of experience at this time really dealing with the hiring of the workforce, which a lot of the folks I I know, they have worked at wineries that have been really, really good about protecting undocumented folks that work there. And I think most people in the wine industry know that they will be entirely screwed if they didn't have undocumented labor to rely on. The good news is that it is a fairly competitive market for laborers. So I think and I hope that laborers are able to present day get better wages than they have necessarily been able to in the past. I know there's been tons of labor wars, specifically in California. Um, The places that I've worked here, our day laborers get paid minimum wage or above, which I think is probably fairly uncommon. There's a couple of things that really drive me crazy about the different sections of wine culture and wine buying and viticulture technology practices. There is a huge like natural wine movement. People are really into biodynamic wines and organic wines. And I, I'm not against any of that stuff. Where my problem comes is when someone that has a business would rather buy 
a biodynamic wine from France than a locally grown wine from Long Island or from upstate New York, where the carbon footprint of bringing that wine from France to the States is exponentially larger than if they bought wine locally. Because for me, that makes absolutely no sense. And the other side of that is when you're treating grapes biodynamically or organically, there are very few ingredients that you can use. And one of these main ingredients is copper. And for this to be the most used chemical on sites, copper leaches into the groundwater and can taint and poison all of the local water sources. Instead of thinking about chemicals, maybe folks should think about what is something better that I could grow that isn't going to require as much treatment and as much attention um, and won't have as much of an impact on the environment. For folks in New York State that want to plant a vineyard based on what they can grow in France, we are not France. You should not base what you're growing on France. It is a different climate. We can't grow those same things. So instead of trying to copy, you should think about what can we do? What areas can I look at that have a more similar climate? What can I grow that will have less of a footprint, that I will have to spray less, that will produce more fruit? It's really adapting to climate change. And people need to realize that some of the choices we're making are actually contributing to that. And I think people are. I think that folks are tired of constantly having vine failure, grapes die, not producing. I guess my official title would be head winemaker. And I've never really thought about it as, as a prideful thing, but I guess I am proud of that title. Especially for me, having dropped out of high school and, you know, had kind of a crazy life where going to college, let alone getting a master's degree from an Ivy League university, if you asked me at 16 if that would be my life, I would have laughed in your face and probably had some other choice words. So kind of getting to a point in my career that I have a title, I think that's more of the place of pride for me, that I have a title that, you know, comes with it. It has a little bit of hubbub to it. I mean, all things aside, I, I am a Leo. I do like to, you know, be fancy and ruffle my mane for attention every now and then. So I do like it. And, it, and it's a very interesting career. I mean, people always want to talk about it. I've had to leave a few therapists because it was never therapy. It was me telling them about my job. In, I guess, six years now, I've gone, you know, from an intern to a head winemaker. I've been very lucky, but I also have a very strong work ethic. I just, I like doing things my way, and I'm lucky that I feel confident in my choices of what I want to do. I have never started a vineyard from the ground up or winery from the ground up, and having to essentially figure out how much wine we're going to create, what equipment we need for that, how to successfully do, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12 ferments, perhaps simultaneously, if that needs to happen, how to juggle all of this stuff and not let anything fall through my fingers and do that in the midst of a crisis. 
I very much got dropped in and into a fire and made it through unscathed. It gives me kind of a double sense of pride in in my title as head winemaker that I really, I got the pants, I put them on and, and they fit. I, I'm not sure if this job is important. I can see some importance to wine in general, be it healthy importance or not. I feel like People have lots of memories, lots of events, lots of life occasions that often happen around wine. And, you know, as someone who does enjoy it, there are times that I've been out, dinners that I've been to, bottles of wine that I've shared with people that for me, it really all makes that experience that much richer. As far as, you know, other things I've done in my life, I don't think making wine is changing the world for the better necessarily. I don't think it's necessarily making it worse at the same time, but in the grand scheme of things, I think there's some smaller scale importance to it. There definitely is in a historical way. I mean, it has been throughout the history of, you know, humankind for the most part. So there's that tying to it. But at this point, There's so much of it that I think is based around class that I don't necessarily know how important something can be when it is so financially exclusive. That being said, there are great cheap wines, and I think a lot of places price their wines at certain points to be exclusive in that way. I'm sure that there are plenty of, you know, LGBT people working in the winemaking world. I have not met many of them. I'm very lucky that a crew that I worked on two years ago, there was one other queer person that uh, was gender variant, and that made me feel very much at home. But aside from them, I have not yet come across another single queer person in winemaking, which in some ways is frustrating but in other ways my thoughts are the hudson valley has a very small population of wineries at this point and i think because of climate change the hudson valley is going to start having more and more wineries over time and kind of my dream is that hudson valley will kind of be where queer winemakers really start to gravitate towards i don't this is really just a pipe dream oregon has done really well at promoting They have tons and tons of women winemakers, and California is California, and there are always exceptions to the rule, but uh, the number of queers I've come across in winemaking has been few and far in between, which is funny, you know, for someone who worked in queer bars for their entire life, for the most part, to be so devoid of that community at this point is, is a bit lonely, but I'm also, you know, working by myself a lot of the time, so it's not like I'm around anyone at all. As far as importance, though, I do feel like being a bartender at a queer bar and being me in particular at a queer bar was probably more important of a role than this. You know, I don't want to say I did my service, but I was very kind and very nice to many, many people for many, many years, and it just fried me. I can count in my, you know, 15, 16, 17 years at this one bar in New York, the number, I can still count on my hands, 
the number of times I ever yelled at anyone. It just, I never, ever got to that point. And playing therapist and, you know, being someone that I think most people always felt like they could talk to definitely feels quite a bit more important than my job now. But I'm hoping that maybe doing this and being here and, you know, once, once I guess more people are aware of my presence or, you know, we haven't really even released our first wines yet. Once people start meeting me and I'm associated with the winery and people start tasting the wines because they're really, really good. Um, I'm very, very proud of what I've made. I'm hoping that that might also start to be important, that it's more, you know, being a queer person that's in winemaking and the winemaking being important because I am queer and doing it and that I've kind of carved out my path to get to this. I do think about what the future will bring fairly frequently. The only other thing that I've ever wanted to do that I have not done is be a scuba diving instructor. And I don't know if that would actually ever happen, but I, I'm not, I'm not totally sure. I, I worked so much while I lived in New York city when I was doing my pre-med stuff, I had two, sometimes three jobs in addition to doing like either HIV AIDS volunteer work or cancer volunteer work in addition to my classes and going from that to then Cornell. And then now I feel like all of my very much burning the candle at both ends is caught up with me. And I have zero interest in working more than 40 hours, let alone 32 hours a week. It's just, I don't think I can physically handle it anymore. And I kind of feel like a spoiled brat saying that I don't want to work a 40 hour week. Most wine jobs, all the ones that I've had pretty much, they'll say 40 hours and the expectation is that you will work a 50 to 60 hour week. And I just can't do that. I'm not really stuck on anything. I just, uh, I know what I don't want to do more than what I do. So I'm kind of game for whatever. We'll see what life has to bring. It's never been not amazing in my life, so who knows? 